Good morning. It's good and not good to be back. Both. This is good. But if I can jump in a lake after this again, it'd be great. But so if you would please turn to the book of Hebrews. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible instruction to the hearts and to the souls of his saints. In Jesus' name. Father, as we just prayed through that song, Let us see your Son and the glory and the beauty of Him in our obedience to this text. Break up our follow, fallow, hard ground. Cause us to see the glory of your Son in the life of each other to the exaltation of his name and to the perseverance of our souls in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 should be causing every Christian in here to ask the question, how important are other people who are Christ-centered to my life, in my life, to my faith, to my persevering, to my battle against sin and hard-heartedness? Okay, so... What, what we've seen is a recap in the previous two weeks that we've spent in Hebrews chapter 3 is first, every single born-again person is in a battle. Sin is within us constantly waging war against our souls to deceive us. And thus we don't even know it to the extent we're deceived to harden our hearts so that we're calloused to the work of the Spirit in our lives. And if the deceitfulness of sin becomes successful, the text says it leads to hardness of heart and hardness of heart unchecked. And then again unchecked and then down the road still unchecked will lead to falling away from the living God. The second thing that we have seen is that the evidence that we have in the past actually become Christians, sharers of Christ, is that we do hold fast to our original confidence in Christ. We hold it firm and we hold it to the end of our lives. Hebrews sees two possibilities for professing Christians. Either they hold fast and they persevere in faith to the end, and thus they show that they have, in the past, truly become sharers of Christ, born again. Or they become hardened 
by the deceitfulness of sin with a hard heart of unbelief. And they show that they never truly have become sharers in Christ. And the third thing that we have seen is that the means that God has appointed to enable his people to persevere in faith to the end is body life. Daily exhortations from other Christians into your life, in yours into theirs. That's verse 13. But exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we've seen that every born again person, every person who has been brought to saving faith in Jesus, they've come to share in Christ, all of them Every last one of them will persevere to the end and they will be saved in the resurrection. And one of the evidences that you're one of them who actually knows Christ by His indwelling Spirit is that when God reveals in His Holy Word His means for your persevering, well then you're the person who takes Him seriously. And thus, you pursue those means in order to make your election and your calling sure. And this text, again this morning then, makes it clear that one of the means that God has ordained for persevering in faith and fighting an evil heart of unbelief that we're all in a battle with is the Christian community. The first answer he gives in verses 12 to 14 is verse 12. The answer to how do you persevere to the end? Take care. That's how. Take, we saw this the last time. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take heed, take precautions, fight against unbelief rising up in your heart. Be diligent. Diligent to increase your faith, your hope in Christ against all the competing anxieties and fears and toys and false gods of the world. And then the second answer the writer gives us and how to persevere to the end is that he unpacks the first. He says, you take heed by verse 13. But exhort one another every day. As long as you wake up and it's still you say it's today. For the purpose that, or in order that, you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So not just prayer. It's not just your Bible reading. It's not just right now, Sunday mornings, sitting under preaching of the Word. It's not just corporate worship services, but here, daily exhortation from other Believers, that's God's appointed means to enable His children to persevere to the end. Biblically, the church, we know, is the body of Christ. That's the New Testament metaphor. It's not a building. It's not a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. It's a living organism with this person is a finger, and this one's an ear, and that one's an eye, and that's a liver, and that's a hand, and that's a toe. And verse 13 says that the way we persevere and fight against unbelief is by each member 
exhorting and encouraging each other. This verse assumes that New Testament church life doesn't just consist of this right now. Public, vertical worship services. And then walk out the door and you go home. And seven days later, you come back and do it again. That is not New Testament church life. This verse assumes close, vulnerable with some, in the trenches, eye to eye relationships. Because it is in those contexts that the other person earns the right to speak into your life and you into theirs. The right to maybe say, hmm, you sure your heart's not getting hardened here? Not a stranger, they're not a stranger anymore because you've went through the fear of being known. Say, okay, there's a safe place. See, that's pretty personal stuff. We are to speak to each other, according to this text, in ways that help us not continue being deceived by our own sinfulness. Or to say that positively, we are to speak to one another and, and help each other in ways that cause us to see the beauty and the glory and the all-desirableness of Jesus to us again and again as we preach, share Christ at the center of one another. Do you see this? Said, let me read this chapter to you. Let me read this parable of Jesus to you. Let's sing now after we've read it. Or, and we see. And we're strengthened. We fight to maintain each other's faith by exhorting one another every day to look to the truth in order to value Jesus above the deceptiveness of our own sinful hearts. That's body life. That's New Testament Christianity. That's where your Bible reading comes in. That's where studying the Bible comes in. That's where the teaching and preaching ministry of the local church comes in. And as an end, okay, the Apostle Paul was crystal clear about this dynamic. You remember in Ephesians 4, right? He says, Jesus, he, he gave pastors and teachers. Why? In order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we would no longer be tossed to and fro. Picture the ocean in a storm can't control by every wind of doctrine and cunning, deceitful, crafty schemes that are floating around in the world. And then he says in verse 15, but rather. And so here's the flow again. What I'm doing now, pastors and teachers, it's for the equipping of the saints so that, verse 15, you speaking the truth to one another in love. That's how we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, even Christ 
from whom the whole body joined and held together by every member of the local church, every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And thus, study, Bible reading, being taught, the preaching of the Word is all in order to, I see, wow, I taste. Jesus really, really is good. That has encouraged my soul. And now you turn and you allow that vision of Christ to overflow and encourage. Can you see? Do you see what I see? To the other person who may be in more need than you now as you exhort your fellow believer. And then, of course, you're receptive to the, the truth is there. It doesn't change. Read the Bible accurately, but now you watch that truth. God's truth of the Bible reflect upon that other Holy Spirit indwelt person. It reflects off their life and their uniqueness in a way that you would not have seen or had that applied to your life. Thus we receive that encouragement of the life of the Bible reflecting off of the fellow believer. Uh, let, me, let me just put it, okay, look, God, He doesn't just save, and that's it, bye, right? He, he has all kinds of means of grace, and to initially be saved, that in itself is a means of grace. How are they going to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? The means of grace is He brings the hearing to you of the gospel. How are they going to hear if they don't have someone preaching how they're going to preach unless they're sent. Now you're in. Okay. He also has the means of grace of meditation on Scripture in your life. That's Psalm 1. There it is. He's shown you means of grace. Quietly reading, meditating. Sitting under the preaching of the Word in the local church like right now. This is a means of grace. Baptism is a means of grace. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. And other believers exhorting you is a means of grace. And that dynamic can happen formally, in groups, set for that time. And it happens informally, but it happens under the authority of, of the Bible where, where the truth and the gospel and the word of God in, in, in that context is, pre, is preeminent, but not it alone. You've got to bring to that vulnerable hearts. Not one that's closed up. It has walls all built around it. It says nobody's allowed into the real house of Joe LeMay. To the extent that we are guarded like that, we are resisting this means of God's grace. And therefore we cannot obey verse 13. The danger signs should pop up in our heads so that we pay attention and turn from the cliff that's ahead. This is a major part of the Christian life. Others. Other Jesus-loving people. Just to give you an illustration. Okay, the vulnerability. You don't get more vulnerable than what you can. Trust, you can. You can have very close same-sex friendships and all that. But marriage is a pretty vulnerable thing. And if you're fortunate enough to have a fellow Christian who loves Jesus, uh, in that context, that just as an illustration, is a means of grace like in my life. Now, why? What's the dynamic that makes that a means of grace? I 
can't play. We live together. I can't play games. I can't play spiritual, self-righteous games like it's so easy for people that come to buildings every Sunday morning and put on a happy face and never get known or even care to spend time to, to know. They punched their ticket and they went to church and they do it 50 or 48 times a year. No, I can't, you can't hide when you, when you allow others into your life and you do life and you're, and you're doing it and the reason that you even have your main relationship with them is because of Jesus and we're all dying. And there's a judgment to come. And He saved her and Him. And look at that. We're aliens in this world together. As you get known, then that other person now, oh, you know, they've earned the right. You know each other. You have a very deep conversation. Whether it's spouse or good friends and other fellow church members, you get into each other's life and what you're going through, and it's like, hmm, I've known you for a while. I'm not, are you sure everything's okay? Do you have any prayer time with the Lord? One of my wife's favorites over the years. I don't know if she's said it more than five times, but why don't you act like a Christian? And you're going to initially, particularly in that relationship, just resist it. But you might go away then and say, Lord, is he up to something true here? So this dynamic, it, it happens informally. When friendships develop. In the context, and here's the key, of Christ. Of Christ being the center. Not something else. There's a lot of something else. They're great. I, look, I can preach a sermon on hobbies, that you should have a hobby or three. It's important. But it's not like I go to church and we have the same hobby and that's what we do. That's not what this text is talking about. It can happen informally because of Christ being at the center, and it happens formally when you have meetings that are structured in order to allow the truth and the power of the Scripture. And this is not one of those moments. This is, this is a monologue. This is, this is teaching. This is preaching. There's not horizontal interaction going. We, we kind of try to keep this hour and a half Sunday morning as vertical as we can and non-horizontal. And then we can go horizontal for how many hours you want after. But so this is about the, the horizontal where you take the vertical and you lay it down and you look eye to eye and in Christ and biblical theology and in Scripture and what are we going after? What are you going through? And unique application from one to another's life. That's what this text is about. And the key is an openness to be known, which can be terrifying. But it's not just an openness to be known. I mean, I spent a week I'm sorry. <laughs> I should just stick with my text is what I should do and not do that. I spent a week with some family members, a couple of them. They're open, secular, pagan. A lot of people be open. This is a, and that's good. Openness is good. I don't know Christ. It's an openness together in the context of Christ, his truth. Confronting our lives and appealing to our desires, joy, and hope. And so it's an openness to the reality of our own sin 
and our own foibles and our own lack of gifts and our own spiritual blindness and our own struggles, which in that openness gives the other person a safe place to share theirs. Thus gives each other a permission to speak into each other's lives. I've been a Christian for 41 years. I love sports. I like to play them, a few of them, and I'm a sports fan of a few sports, and I know sports. I love that. It's part of my life I fit in there. But that sports loving in the context of a local church is absolutely zero grounds for building Christian relationships that are going to help me persevere. The significant people, when I look back over the first decade of my Christianity and then the second decade and the third and fourth, and people come in and out during the seasons of life, when I look back at 40 years of Christianity, the most significant people who were close to me and vulnerable to me and vice versa and were inspirations to me in my walk with Christ, almost all of them were not sports fans at all. And we probably never would have clicked or gotten together if it weren't for Jesus invading our lives. I might, what I'm going to say, maybe you be the judge whether this is just Joe LeMay's rebelliousness or whatever. But if a church that I were in would try to put me in a small group to, you know, do Christian life together in a small group, which we should all have smaller, you know, you can get to know people. But so I'm all for that. But if they said, oh, we're going to put you in a small group based upon the color of your skin. Or we're going to put you in a small group because you're a sports lover, Joe. Let's have the sports loving guys over here in a group. Or you're a movie lover. Here's the movie-loving people over here in this small group in the local church. Or, you know what, you're married, so you've got to be with the married people. Or you're single, you have to be with the single people. You're a surfer, we've got a surfer's group over here. I would have just wanted to throw up. I need radical Christians. That's all I need. That's what you need. Radical, meaning serious, pursuing Christ, Christians on fire for Jesus, whether they love sports or hate sports, whether it's a 92-year-old woman and I'm only a 22-year-old single man, or now that I'm older, whether it's a 20-year-old kid who loves Jesus, single or married. In other words, we ought, to want to meet around Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 14. So I'm going to do for the next numbers of minutes. And so just focus. I am going to allow the New Testament to just straightforwardly, and to say that different, I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit Himself, through the written Word of God, point us to the Things we ought to be doing together as Christians and exhorting one another every day. So let God's grace flow over you as I read numerous texts. 1 John 4.11, the Lord says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That, that's the large canopy, the inclusive command. That, that's not to love the, 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 the non-Christian. There are other texts in the Bible for that, okay? This one is very clear. This is about the church, the community, professing believers together. Romans 15, 7. 
He says, welcome one another. As Christ has welcomed you. And then he said, watch it. He welcomed them, each other, to the glory of God. So when you read a text like that, you close your eyes and you think, Christ welcomed me? What does that mean? Well, hopefully, as a Christian, you're, you're far enough down the road, you, you have this biblical worldview that's clear what that meant. And he called you. He died for you. He put away your sin. And he said, come unto me. All you who are heavy laden and burdened. And then you did it. And Jesus welcomed. Now you take that and say, oh, I am to welcome. Be that welcoming to other Jesus people. Our homes, our groups, our meetings should be welcoming places. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 to 26. Paul writes, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. First Peter 4.10 as each of you has received a gift, abilities, your unique personalities from God, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 Always seek to do good to one another that's within the church. And then he adds, and, and to everyone. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. Bleed Bible. Shove Scripture into your head, into your heart, into your soul. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Now watch. He's not done. Now watch. To the body. This is not to pastors and to elders and their job of teaching. No, no. Let that dwell within you richly. You now teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, admonishing... That has a bite to it. And it's sometimes necessary among people who actually love one another, care about each other's souls. And then, he says, together, we take the Scripture, we take the Psalms, take the truth, and you put them in hymns, we lift our voices to sing with thanksgiving to our common bond. And it's not sports or shopping or movies. It's Christ. Ephesians 5, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your hearts. Hearing each other sing to our great Savior is highly whether it's in a crowd of 3,000 or six in a living room. Romans 15, 5 to 6. May the God of endurance 
and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, if we are afflicted, Corinthian church, it is for your comfort and your salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience that comfort when you, Christians in Corinth, when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. How precious to be in small groups. And then the tragedy hits. The grief comes, the pain and loss, and you're not an unknown church-going person. They know you. They feel it. They suffer with you. Oh, how encouraging that is to the Christian soul. Romans 15. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, so that you yourselves are full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge. Now watch, again, this is not addressed to the elders and the pastors. It's to the whole church. You're filled with goodness and knowledge and able to instruct one another. As we're filled more and more with the knowledge of the Word of God in our walk with Christ, in our worship of Christ, in our battle in our own sin, we begin to instruct in not formal, but informal, one another's. No one, there is no Christian who ever gets beyond the need to be instructed by another fellow believer. God does not mean for any of his children to be alone with their Bibles. Merely. But to also experience the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the other as it reflects off their hearts and their giftings to you and vice versa. Colossians 3. Bearing with one another. I can take that line. He's not done with his sentence. That's a, you know, remember how Paul at the end of 2 Corinthians said, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Well, here's, an, here's another New Testament text that should go throughout the evangelical church world. Read those words, bearing with one another. Are you in any kind of context where that makes sense? And if not, you're failing the test. It's a bad test. There are a lot of people who go to church every Sunday, and that's irrelevant to them. And it's their choice, not the church's. There's no need to bear because they don't commune. The walls are up. Might say pleasantries, and yes, it's time like we don't do here to spend three, four minutes and say hi to your neighbor. Bearing with one another. You can't get married or you can't have a close friend for any period of time without having the need to bear with the other. Let me finish it. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and when we struggle with that it's this wonderful 
means of grace bringing you back to the gospel. Do you really believe it? I mean, do you, can, you, can you actually believe th that their offense against you was greater than your offense against God, which brought His eternal wrath upon you? Until He brought you to faith in Christ and forgave you? And so because he forgave you, not you, you might think about it. He says, you, you have to. You ought to. That's the logic. Love involves being patient with each other's flaws, foibles, shortcomings, irritating personalities. None of us are ever right in rejecting a fellow believer because they get on our nerves. We have to wrestle with that. We have to deal with that. They may never change. You may never change. You might be that person to others and you don't even know it. 1 Peter 4.9 Ooh. Show hospitality to one another. Can you let that sit? Wow. And he added two more words. I hadn't read them yet. And then I think most of us have been around long enough, if not all of us, we know why he adds these last two words. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Because it can get hard. Hospitality, that's important. It was important in the first century, and it's just as important today. Because much of actual New Testament church life happens in homes. It happens over dinners. It happens in groups in homes. There's something about being in each other's homes, in an environment of real life, real, not playing games. It's hard to hide if you're around a lot. And family, it, all of that, that's what's precious. Where we see each other's undoneness. And we can thus be yourselves because you allowed yourself to be vulnerable enough and vice versa. And you know what? Jesus is saving us. Anyway, that's conducive to the Christian battle. Okay, one more. One more text. And I'm going to go back to the writer, to the Hebrews, because this is how he says this now in chapter 10 of Hebrews Verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because He who promised is faithful. And let us consider if other people are meeting my needs. And say that. Well, I don't know. I, I don't need that. I'm pretty strong, so why would I ever show up to that? If everyone thought that way, no one would ever be encouraged in the Lord by another. Maybe you're supposed to be there to be a person who's encouraging someone else who really needs it. And let us consider how to, here it is, stir up one another to love and good works by how? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's funny he adds that, right? I, I don't, depending on which countries or nation states you live in during the last 2,000 years, or, or whether the church in America is more towards, the day is drawing nearer than it was 10 years ago about opposition to the church. You, you might want to already be practicing that. Encouraging. Will you stand or will you cave? Well, if you're isolated, you're more likely to cave. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This text envisions not just informal haphazard meetings with other believers, which is part of it, but this one sees here in Hebrews 10, planned gatherings for the purpose of exhortation. Hebrews says, meet together, meet in word-oriented worship services, meet in homes, meet in restaurants. Don't neglect to meet. How else, according to Scripture, how else can we exhort each other to hold fast? The confession of our hope, firm to the end. How else can we stir each other up to love and good works. Meet. Meet around the Word and the openness of your own life and prayer. The warning is there. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Professing Christians, that's all of us in this room, we're always in danger of forming the habit of not meeting with other Christians to encourage and to be encouraged in faith and love. And now back to the larger text that we saw a few weeks back. This is crucially important because of what verse 14 of Hebrews 3 says is at stake when believers gather together. Take heed by exhorting one another because we have in the past truly become sharers of Christ if indeed we hold firm our original confidence to the end. I believe in eternal security of the believer with all my heart. And that is this all born again, truly saved people will be saved in the end. Not whether or not they persevere in faith. Not whether or not they are fighting an evil heart of unbelief and doing battle against it. No. They will persevere because God will sovereignly see to it that they persevere in faith to the end, which means they take the Scripture like this. All of the Scripture, and they take this passage and the warnings that are given to them, they take those very seriously. And that's His sovereign work. And one of the means of persevering that He will sovereignly work is verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Those people out there in the world who say, I accepted Christ, and thus I am eternally secure, so therefore I do not need to be warned about unbelief. I do not need to meet together with other Christians in order to be encouraged to fight against unbelief. 
those persons have a profoundly unbiblical and dangerous doctrine of eternal security. The genuine believer's attitude is to be, oh Lord, I'm confident that you who began my new life in Christ by calling me by the gift of new birth, you will complete that work by causing me to persevere to the end. And therefore, I will fight an evil heart against unbelief that wants to constantly rise up within me. Because that's the means of perseverance. And that persevering faith includes meeting with other believers to spur one another on in faith. To help each other as we pull each other along up the river of the battleground of this present evil age. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this magnificent, wonderful plan of salvation from the foundation of the world. You created a world so that your eternal Son would become one of us without sin, to suffer and die for all whom you have given to him, and rise from the dead and be seated at your right hand and sovereign rule over all creation. And thus, by the work of his cross, you sent the Holy Spirit to get us. Bring us through the means of grace of hearing that gospel to yourself. And your means of grace go on. They go on in the life of the church, the assembly, the body, the gathering. Oh, we thank you for the gift of others. We thank you for the gifts of the Holy Spirit in others to us and of the privilege of sharing our gifts to serve the other to the glory of your name.